They say being a parent is a full-time job, but I already have one of those. Luckily, I use Instacart to help me order everything I need while I'm stuck in meetings all day. So while Instacart is helping me get groceries, snacks for school lunches, and something for at-home happy hour, I get more time back to juggle my day job and my mom job. Save time by downloading the Instacart app or visit instacart.com to get $10 off your first order using the code INGREDIENTS10. Offer valid for a limited time. Minimum order $35. Delivery subject to availability. Additional terms apply. I think, look, if we don't do what we need to do, the, the window is closing quite fast. We have 10 more years left, I believe. If we don't get it right, then we just should assume that we're going to be a second-rate power technologically and, and eventually militarily. How should the U.S. frame industrial policy grand strategy in light of China's <laughs> rise? What can America expect from its allies on tech policy? Also, how does the power trader paradigm and Albert Hirschman's analysis of 20th century Kaiser and Nazi trade policy help explain China today? To discuss, we have on the show Rob Atkinson, president of ITIF, the Information Technology and Innovation Foundation, a nonpartisan D.C.-based think tank. This episode was brought to you by the Korea Foundation, which has sponsored a series of China Talk episodes supplementing my upcoming paper coming out next month entitled Labs Not Fabs, How the U.S. Should Invest in the Future of Semiconductors. Rob, welcome to China Talk. Hey, Jordan. It's a real pleasure to be here. I love your show. So why is national IT and digital leadership important? In each era, uh, Joseph Schupeter, the famous uh, innovation economist, uh, argued that there are these big waves or cycles of innovation, and, and they, they tend to be self-reinforcing. And so you had this cycle in the early 1900s, kind of a combination of electricity and steel. After the war, it was, it was electronics and chemicals. And, and today it really is digital, uh, not the only major technology, but digital technologies all the way from semiconductors through 5G, if you will, are really the underlying uh, what are called general purpose technologies. And they power all sorts of growth. They're important to our military. They're important to U.S. competitiveness. Why is it important that America lead on these issues? For you know, a couple of main reasons. Uh, look at the U.K. They used to lead uh, back in that old wave of technologies, and they they lost. Uh, they lost out to Germany and Japan and then the U.S., and the result has been it's very hard for them to be competitive. And so if you can't be globally competitive, your currency level is going to fall dramatically. It means that, you know, in 20 years, we're not going to be able to go overseas on vacation because the price of the dollar is going to be so low. We're going to have to pay a lot more for our imports. So our standard of living will go down. Secondly, these industries are propulsive industries that create good jobs. The tech jobs in the tech industry pay about 75, 80 percent more than average jobs. And then the third reason really is, 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 is national power. Countries that have strong national, strong IT industries have more power nationally. Uh, and, and that's important for all sorts of diplomatic and other reasons. And obviously important for, for military. If you look at the, uh, what's called the, the third offset program in, in DOD, essentially the first one was nuclear weapons back in the 50s. The second one was related to things like stealth. Uh, we have to be technologically more advanced than our adversaries because our adversaries oftentimes are bigger than we are. And certainly that's the case in China. IT is super critical to us being able to have a lead, continue to have a military lead over China. And that is an important thing for us to have just because hopefully we'll never have to use it. But as a deterrence, uh, if the Chinese government knows that the U.S. military has significantly 
stronger force capabilities than it does, it's going to be much less hesitant, much more hesitant to do anything, including Taiwan. So I grew up in a era which is sort of unique in U.S. history of this sort of industrial policy type stuff um, to push forward, uh, you know, America's IT national leadership not being at the forefront of government's minds. But uh, in in one of your papers, you take it all the way back to the Civil War, um, talking about how the North's, you know, armaments regime to, 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 to fight the South is really where you'd start the clock on this. Rob, let's do a, a brief history going through Let's start it. Let's start at 1861 uh, and maybe take us through the uh, the 1980s and the Reagan administration. Oh, sure. You know, it was funny. I, I was watching the inaugural uh, ceremonies last night and, and Vice President Harris mentioned some things about important figures. And she talked about Lincoln. And, and I was so pleased. I was like, wow, this is great. She talked about Lincoln building the Transcontinental Railroad or enabling that and also the land grant universities. So, you know, Lincoln was one of the most important industrial policy presidents we had because he, he, by having the transcontinental railroad, it linked together our economy. It helped build the railroad industry. It helped enable manufacturers, which needed scale. Uh, and obviously the land grant colleges played a critical role in enabling technical education for manufacturers. But actually I'd even go back farther. I won't go into too many details, but I'd actually go back to. Oh no, this is the fun part. Okay. <laughs> So uh, War of 1812 actually was critical to uh, American uh, industrial policy. We entered that war uh, uh, and, and we were so badly prepared technologically. Uh, we, the, the British outgunned us, outshipped us, whatever. And so we, the Congress put together a crash program on military technology. Uh, this is partly where the Springfield Armory came from, where we were uh, 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 we were we created uh, interchangeable parts for for, for the rifles, um, but also shipbuilding technology and the like. And obviously, all all this goes back to Hamilton too. That's something people forget. Uh, oftentimes in the history of the U.S., everybody seems to think that all the founders were anti-federalists and Jeffersonians, and they forget that half of the founders were actually Hamiltonians uh, who wanted a strong industrial policy. So anyway, then you jump up to Lincoln. Uh, Roosevelt. I mean, one of the things people forget is um, uh, the U.S. at one time had the most powerful and largest color uh, television, radio and television industry in the world and firm, RCA, Radio Corporation of America. What people forget about that, that was actually created by Rose, uh, Franklin Roosevelt in the uh, Wilson administration because Marconi, this was the Huawei of the time, Marconi uh, German-owned or Italian-owned, right? Italian and British combined. And, and our Navy was saying, we cannot afford to have that. That's too much of a national security risk. So they, unlike the Chinese, <laughs> we bought out the rights to the Marconi patents. We paid Marconi, the company. And then we built our own industry, our own firm, partly with GE and we called Radio Corporation of America. And we did many, many things like that. Um, but the main where we really, really got into industrial policy, if you will, and that was after World War II. We created, essentially, I'd have a, I have a new piece coming out in the DOD journal called, called PRISM uh, next month, and it really, it argues that we created the best and most effective industrial policy program ever in mankind's history. And it was basically all built around confronting the Soviets. And we didn't call it industrial policy because we couldn't. 
But we, for example, in the 1960s, the U.S. government spent more on R&D than every other company and every other government combined outside of the U.S. So take all the foreign companies, all the foreign governments. The U.S. government alone was spending more on R&D. Uh, places like DARPA, uh, you know, DOE, DOD, uh, NSF. That gave us this huge, huge lead, and we continued to do that actually all the way through uh, the all the way through to the early 1990s. We had the Omnibus Trade and Competitiveness Act in 1989, where that created the national or renamed it into the National Institute of Standards and Technology. But it was really only in the 90s when the if wait, you wait, will, let's, the, the let's stop. Let's stop there. Let's stop there. So, sure. um, yep. what? So, what is your? I mean, clearly you have a you have a point of view on this, but make the yes. case that America's rise to technological dominance from I don't know the 1930s to the end of the Cold War was a function of sort of design as opposed to random institutional endowments that uh, that the U.S. had, and you know its lead coming out of World War II and what have you. No, absolutely, and and you know I mean one of the problems with the with the industrial policy debate is that a lot of the even well, certainly a lot of conservative economists, but some moderate economists, you know, well, we, you know, we don't want, you know, Soviet style planning, you know, that's the alternative. Look, that was never the alternative in the United States. The alternative was sort of laissez-faire pre-FDR, uh, you know, where the government didn't do much, although occasionally it did, and sort of having the act, having an active state that supports the private sector to drive innovation. If we hadn't had that state, I don't think we would have had uh, a semiconductor industry the way we do now, for example. We certainly wouldn't have had the internet. The internet was built out of defense funding. We wouldn't have had GPS. I mean, you just go down, we wouldn't, we wouldn't have had uh, uh, computer interfaces the way there. I mean, you just go down the list. Uh, it was government funding that played such a central role in all of that. And, you know, look, we're blessed because we've got fantastic entrepreneurs. We've got the Steve Jobs of the world, those types who do great work. But they're building on a base that government helped create. Yeah, it's uh, you, you have a quote in one of your papers that uh, in 1987, Reagan's State of the Union, he went up in front of Congress and said that we will guarantee that government does everything possible to promote America's ability to compete. And, you know, that framework coupled with all the trade actions with Japan and Symmetech and this this big sort of like R&D push he did really sort of belies the narrative or like the received wisdom that a lot of folks have of, of Reagan being this cut taxes, like shrink government uh, person. And, and certainly he did that on a lot of other fronts. But, um, you know, his philosophy was 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 on board with this sort of role that you think government should play when it comes to promoting national IT. No, very much so. I mean, Reagan was a huge supporter of the re creating the research and development tax credit. Um, he, he, his administration, and then actually the first Bush administration supported the creation of what's called the Manufacturing Extension Partnership. So we have a system of over 60 centers. They go out and help small manufacturers. I mean, you mentioned Semitech. There's a whole set of things like that that we created. We changed the law to allow pension funds to invest in venture capital. There are all these things we did. And Reagan understood that competitiveness was critical. Unfortunately, we don't see that today anywhere near as much. So let's let's I want to talk a little bit about kind of the reframing of this debate towards the more neoclassical, like let the markets do what they want viewpoint, which dominated through um, uh, Clinton and Bush and and pretty much 
Obama and maybe even the first two years of Trump. So um, I'm just thinking back to like where I got this idea um, because this is something that I was very much bought into as a, you know, obnoxious high school debater. And I feel like just trying to pinpoint it. Well, it was sort of in the air, but also like the economist and their op-eds at the front of the economist, they just sounded so smart and like sure of themselves. And this was the view that they took was whenever government tried to push any industry, it was always a, you know, boondoggle in the making. But Rob, what were the structural things that changed aside, um, you know, aside from the Cold War ending that led the U.S. to focus away from the more industrial policy forward outlook on treating strategic industries? Yeah, I think the end of the Cold War was a critical factor. There's no question about that. We, we had a national purpose and, and we were willing to do things to, to, to be able to achieve that, including, frankly, industrial policy. But also, one of the things that happened in the late 70s was the rise of supply-side economics and sort of the overthrowing of the Keynesian regime. And in, in Keynesianism, at least there was a recognized role for government. Uh, and then that morphed into essentially the rise of neoclassical economics, sort of the, you know, the Economist magazine is the, is, is the Bible, if you will, for that. And people read it and think they're getting the truth. Neoclassical economics became so strong. It became what, what John Williamson coined the, the Washington Consensus. And under the Washington Consensus, the government role is very, very minimal. My, my favorite one was Alan Blinder's quote, where Blinder was the head of the Council of Economic Advisors under Bill Clinton. And Blinder said, quote, nothing the government can do to there's nothing the government can do to raise the rate of economic growth. Um, Paul Krugman, you know, still pontificates today without knowing what he's talking about on some things. He said there's uh, competitiveness is a dangerous illusion. Boeing may compete with Airbus, but we don't compete with Europe. So this sort of and then these claims, like as you just said, Jordan, oh, well, the government always fails. And the question is. Most economists, they at least have the pretense of having some evidence for their claims. But when it comes to this question of industrial policy, it's completely evidence-free. They don't cite any studies. My, here's my favorite of all time. Larry Summers, he, uh, you know, Obama's guy, uh, uh, ec economic uh, czar. Larry Summers wrote a big piece back in the late 70s where he did a model that if we, an, a, a, using a, a DRI econometric model, that if we had modeling the economy with an investment tax credit for investing in machines and not an investment tax credit, and what he found is not having an investment tax credit actually lowered GDP growth and lowered investment. Duh. Yeah. No kidding. So what did he recommend? Getting rid of the investment tax credit because it was industrial policy. Can you talk through sort of the appeal of the neoclassical framework towards this sort of thing? Yeah, there's two parts of that. There's the appeal to the priesthood, and then there's the appeal to the layperson. So the priesthood appeal is all these economists, really, the economics profession really fundamentally shifted to becoming a mathematical one. As a great quote by Ken Boulding once said, mathematics has brought rigor to economics. It's also brought mortis in other words, rigor mortis, the neoclassical economists simply have no way of modeling industrial policy. They have no way of modeling innovation. They really don't. And they will acknowledge that. And rather than say our, our models don't work, what they say is we're going to put it outside the model. That's why Paul Romer's work was called endogenous growth theory, bringing innovation back into the model. But by and large, economists don't understand and don't even talk about innovation. 
uh, in uh, one of the best-selling uh, macroeconomic textbooks by, he was in the Bush administration, it, it, no discussion of innovation except for one page, and it's Man a discussion Q. of Mankiw, thank you, Greg Mankiw's book, and it's a discussion of the ice cream maker. So that's number one. The economists are simply, they can't model industrial policy. They have this really religious view that markets always get it right. Now then the question- I heard an interview the other yeah. day with, with, with Paul Romer, and he said he got so depressed um, that his, uh, his profession wasn't going to take endogenous growth ther- seriously that he like left and you know, went to some education software startup in the, I think, 90s or 2000s because he was just sick of fighting these fights. Yeah, exactly. I mean, I I feel bad for for Paul because uh, he, you know, he did fantastic work on that, and and it was just he was rejected and ignored. And you know, if you if you have that view, you're 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 outside the club, and and you're not going to make it really as a as a you know high level economist. And you know, they all know that. Larry Summers has admitted that as much. He said, if you want to get ahead, you got to go along with what everybody's thinking. But then the question is, well, why did why did sort of policymakers buy into this? Well, part of it is policymakers are insecure when it comes to economic questions. Who wants to go out on a limb and challenge Larry Summers and, and, and challenge Alan Blinder and, and, and challenge all of these people? You don't want to do that. Um, and then secondly, it, 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 to some extent, it favored the interests of business for a long time. Uh, interest of business were, just leave us alone. You know, you look at a group like the National Association of Manufacturers, there was a program that we helped the Obama administration launch. We, we did a big event on it and a report. It ended up becoming the, the Manufacturing USA Institutes. And at the time, we were trying to, we were working with Congress to see if we could get that encoded into law, the program. And the National Association of Manufacturers rejected it. They lobbied against a program to help U.S. manufacturers. Now, why was it? It's partly just the ideological function of them. They just, they just want to be left alone. But it was really much more about they, if they would much rather have a government that does nothing and leaves them alone than they would have a government that is involved with them and helps them. Yeah. I think that's because, those because fu- because fundamentally, and you make this point a lot in your work, what this new technology does, if done right, is create creative destruction. And you have new firms getting you know, getting created and the old ones, which may be on top now have to either evolve or will slowly die. Right. And if you're sitting there and it's 1992 and like America is dominating every single uh, industry you could, you could think of, um, and you're, and you're a leading company, it's not really all that much in your interest to rock the boat and introduce sort of new variables, which may end up uh, forcing your business to do things. It's not particularly comfortable with. Absolutely. Absolutely. And, and, you know, I think the other the other big factor, by the way, I think I you know, get into all these. There's a third factor, which which alludes, which is related to that, Jordan. And that's why did why did Reagan support this? Well, partly because the capitalists in the U.S., in other words, business leaders, they supported it an industrial policy because they were shut out of the Japanese market, and and Japanese market was a huge, the second largest market in the world, super fast growing. They wanted into that market. The Japanese wouldn't let us. And so their interest as, as capitalists and as Americans aligned. That vanished uh, by and large once China came on because of the China strategy. They, they looked at what Japan did and they said, we're not going to make that mistake. We're going to get the American companies, the American capitalists to invest in China. And therefore, Americans were, American companies were pretty happy. They're like, we don't need an industrial strategy. We're, we're doing fine. 
Well, but the point of an industrial strategy is not to help companies per se, it's to help the U.S. economy, the U.S. system. And, and once companies had, had a different interest potentially, then you saw that sh shift. Now, the reason why it's shifting back the other way, for example, is look, look at the semiconductor industry now, where they're really threatened by Chinese semiconductor policy. And that's why they supported this new CHIPS Act to help them domestically, as I'm sure you're going to be writing about. So, Rob, why is digital real politic the framework that the U.S. should take into 2021? It's not just digital. It really is. It's related. It should be related to all sort of economic policy. You go back to after including in the Truman administration all the way to now, the, the, the view of foreign policy was that we were willing to sacrifice our economic interest uh, in order to become and maintain the hegemony and influence. And so part of that was we were willing to actually help countries industrialize at our cost, at our expense. We were willing to let countries off the hook if they, oh, as long as you support us on this North Korea thing, we're going we're gonna to let you off the hook on this trade thing that's, that, that's hurting American uh, businesses. So that continues today. I mean, that's, uh, I, look, there are going to be folks in the Biden administration who still believe that, um, that it's more important for us to be the global leader and to sacrifice our own interests. I mean, that's frankly what Obama did to some extent with climate change. He let China get away with certain things, thinking he needed, he needed China to help out on climate. So what we need is a, is a real politic approach, which is to say, look, we're going to put our interests first. Uh, that's not to say we are going to ignore global interests and, and our global responsibilities as the leader of the free world. But we're not going to we're not going to subsume our economic interests the way we've done it for 60, 70 years. Um, can you talk about sort of like the openness principle, which dominated a lot of uh, Obama era thinking on on this topic and how that doesn't quite rise to meet the challenge of today? Yeah. So just to be clear, that's the, the sort of two bigger ones are sort of the broader uh, advanced technology strategy. And then the second part of that uh, within the, that circle, if you will, is, is really more around digital and Internet. And that's a report that we just issued last week. And there what I was talking about is if you look at what the Obama administration strategy was, particularly uh, under uh, Secretary Clinton, it was really that the U.S. should support what's called an open Internet, free speech, uh, uh, you know, letting all voices speak. And uh, and we spent a lot of political capital trying to make that happen. Uh, the problem with that is that doesn't really, at the end of the day, do us a lot of good. We're, we're doing it because we are a good country and we want to support human rights. And, and that's all to the good. The problem was two things. One, it didn't really do very much. Uh, China a lot of dictatorial authoritarian countries they're not going to they're not going to change they're, they're going to continue to block political speech they don't like and and imprison activists on the internet we can say we don't like it but not a lot we can do about it at the end of the day but more importantly it took political capital that we had not enough of to be fighting for these kinds of things rather than to be fighting for our core digital interests like you know a good example is is uh, indonesia for example was was they, they obama administration created this global internet partnership program and, and, and indonesia got to be in it because they made these claims but at the same time they were using completely digital protectionist policies to hurt american firms um, to reduce american jobs and nobody said anything because they were quote open so 
the issue shouldn't be openness. The issue is, are you doing, are you do, taking steps that hurt American companies and American jobs in the digital space? And that's what we be, should be focusing on. Yeah, and it's it's interesting watching the likes of Jake Sullivan and uh, sort of other economic advisors sort of when they say the American middle class, like back in the center of U.S. trade policy, it's it's really a bit of a riff on that of instead of, you know, trusting sort of like our just lowering tariffs and it's kind of neoclassical openness to get us to get us the economy that we need. Like you actually need to sort of lean more on um, making sure that. Uh, sort of the U.S. sees the benefit, and it's not just um, us like giving favors to countries that we respect for other reasons. Yeah, no, very much so. But I, I think one thing that worries me about that new quote doctrine of trade or, or foreign policy around uh, you know putting the middle class first is you know look, there's several ways to put the middle class first. But one way is if we don't have strong multinational U.S. corporations that are gaining market share and not losing market share, even not domestically, but overseas, that hurts the middle class. And I worry that this middle class framing that the Biden administration has doesn't really fully reflect that. Now, here's a really a, a case in point, which is intellectual property. Um, when other countries, for example, uh, force U.S. companies to give away their IP, like in drugs or uh, to not protect uh, movies and, and other things, in, particularly in digital piracy, you know, the narrative from a lot of the progressives is, well, it doesn't affect the middle class. That, that affects, you know, the, the capitalist class. It ignores the fact that, you know, you go look at who's employed in the movie industry. It's mostly middle class technician workers who are, you know, putting up the lights and doing the recordings and all those things. So, you know, I, I think that middle class framing is OK as far as it goes. But really, to me, what it needs to be around is making sure that the U.S. has much more in advanced industrial, uh, robust competitiveness. If we don't have yeah. that, there's nothing we can do for the middle yeah. class. when it comes And then to you trade. sort of also get to get back to tax policy, right, with like, OK, like we're doing all these favors for these like nominally us-based companies but like how much of that is actually being reinvested here versus um yeah i mean I, going sure. to ireland we, or what have you yeah we've got to make sure that the, that the tax code drives investment here rather than uh, over overseas sure you walk through in, in one of your recent papers some of the sort of not ideal scenarios that this new era of national industrial competition could bring us towards. And uh, what I found interesting is the emphasis you put on the EU as a key swing player. Um, so why don't you walk through your framework of uh, EU regulatory imperialism and the extent to which how much uh, Brussels will is willing to follow through on this doctrine being uh, central and how the next uh, couple decades may play out. Yeah, there's really three, if you will, governing doctrines or principles around the digital economy. And so one of them is China, which is obviously authoritarian, uh, both economically and, and, and politically. Uh, it's a control state. And, and you know, they've you got to say they've done pretty well. Uh, when it comes to building digital champions. Then there's the European approach, which is really, which hasn't worked. They don't really have hardly any digital companies, but they keep thinking they're going to get some. And that's really fundamentally based on what's called the precautionary principle. European policy is focused on breaking up big tech companies. It's focused on incredible regulation on privacy, way more than you need to protect people's privacy. It, it sees AI as a threat. 
artificial intelligence. It wants to put all of these barriers in front of it. Um, the problem is, okay, if they want to do that in their own, in the own, in their own, you know, 27 countries, all right, it's not all that bad. Uh, problem is that they have what I call EU regulatory imperialism. They're going around the world. Uh, I was down in Brazil while while back talking to the uh, Commission the government pad on this, and they were basically just adopting almost carte blanche what the Europeans were doing because they thought that was the right model. And it's not the right model. It's a model for slow uh, digital growth at best, uh, squashing innovators. Uh, I was talking to one company in Silicon Valley, really cool company. I won't say who it was, but I said, oh, you're going to go into Europe? And they're like, oh, no way. Uh, this is the privacy rules and the AI rules are just so maybe in five years when we get bigger and we can afford a lot more legal help and all that, we might do it. And Europe's going to suffer it. There's a U.S. approach, which is actually the superior approach, which is, you know, a light touch on regulation and hopefully a little bit more industrial policy around tech, which I think is the superior approach. Uh, we've got to make sure that the European approach is not the dominant approach in the Western world or the yeah, democracy I mean world. It's it's really interesting watching China just in the past two months start to incorporate a few more hints from the Europeans when it comes to this sort of thing um, with with pushing forward more anti-monopoly policy and copying sort of like word for word uh, a lot of Chinese, a lot of European digital privacy law into Chinese regulations and the extent to which that's going to um, sort of like hamper growth, I think is still very much an open question. And, you know, there's, there's, there's also a future in which doing anti-monopoly stuff opens up more room for creative destruction. But uh, watching the sort of feedback loops between the U.S., uh, the EU, and China, even if all these countries aren't necessarily on the best of terms, is going to be a fascinating theme to follow over the next few years. So before we get to what the U.S. can do um, to make some happier outcomes come into place, let's take a step back and talk some Albert Hirschman, my favorite 20th century political economist. So, Rob, what can we learn from Albert Hirschman's analysis of Kaiser and Nazi trade policy? Yeah. So, you know, I've read a bunch of Hirschman and I, I, I've read the recent biography of him called The Worldly Philosopher by Jeremy Edelman. Great book. And he had a couple of pages in there about this this other book that, that Hirschman had on, on, on the foreign trade and power. And, and somebody else mentioned him. So I went back and I got it. And it turns out it was his first book. He wrote it when he was at Berkeley. And um, uh, it was really eye opening. I mean, oh, my gosh, he, he, he was writing about German trade policy really through three regimes, the, the, the Kaiser regime and, the, and the, the, the Republic that had a little while in the 20s or so, and then and all the way through Hitler. But what almost everything he said, if you put the word China in there, you got the exact same analysis. And so what Hirschman was saying is really there, at the time, the way people thought about trade and the way they still do is you've got free trading countries and free traders and you've got protectionist countries and protectionists. Hirschman said, no, there's a third category. That's what he called power traders. They use trade to essentially exert their national power. And they do that in a lot of different ways. But part of it is a strategic approach to hurt and penalize other countries and other industries that threaten them and also to make sure that other countries are weak and dependent upon them. That's what China's doing. Uh, so it's a you know, to me, that's a, it was it was really an eye opening book. Uh, I encourage everybody to read it. So you write that 
Hirschman's key insight was that some countries focus not on maximizing free trade or even protecting their industries, but but on changing the relative power of nations through trade to achieve global power. Germany's policies and programs were designed not only to advance its own economic and military power, but also to degrade its adversaries' economies, even if that imposed costs on their own economy relative to a free trade regime. So how is that sort of framework not addressed by uh, the current global trade system uh, under the WTO? Yeah, I mean... What's interesting there is is the tactics that they used back then uh, were, were the same tactics that China did. And I, I guarantee that Chinese economic policymakers have read Hirschman because they've read so many books. And, you know, they're very astute. They know the history. But, um, for example, uh, Attorney General Palmer in the 20s, he wrote that the German trade power tactics included destroy business competitors by state aid, cartel combination, dumping, bribery, theft of patents, espionage, and propaganda. Hello, that's what we're talking about with China today. So what China is doing is essentially saying, we're willing to give up some short-term economic gains. I mean, if you look at the China made in 2025 strategy or this SE, the Strategic and Emerging Industries Program, they're incredibly expensive programs for what they get. I mean, no rational country would do what they're doing because they it just costs so much to get so little for what they do. But they've got a lot and even a little of what they get is going to be a big deal. They're doing that totally for economic power. If they wanted to raise their GDP, they wouldn't be doing that. They'd, They'd be figuring out ways to get their retail sector more efficient and their wholesale sector and their insurance sector. And they'd open up to banks and from the West, et cetera, et cetera. That's not what they're doing. What they're doing is they want to gain power and they know that they have to be an advanced technology powerhouse and they want to degrade our power. That's the other key thing here. This isn't just about them. Oh, we want to get better. No, no, they they want to get better relative to us. And that means degrading U.S. capabilities. You write that the WTO was created with the idea that countries are either free traded, free traders or misguided protectionists. And the kind of remedies on offer for the sort of um, hijinks that, uh, you know, the first half of the 20th century Germany and contemporary China are up to don't really get resolved by things that the WTO can do. Yeah. So obviously there was no WTO. There was no GATT. Uh, so it was harder back then for countries to do that. And Hirschman had this sort of almost, I don't want to say idealistic view, but he had this view of a, a sort of world trade organization like entity. Now, the problem is that the world trade organization is essentially toothless when it comes to most of the Chinese practices. I was a co-chair for the Obama administration of a thing called the U.S.-China Innovation Experts Group. And so I always remember one of our first meetings, we were over in Beijing and we had a luncheon with a bunch of government officials. And I was talking to an official from the um, NDRC, uh, National Development Reform Commission. And uh, I said, weren't you guys worried about joining the WTO? He said, no, no, just the opposite. The the WTO gave us, and he didn't use this word, but essentially it gave us a get out of jail free card. You, You could no longer use uh, most favored nation taking that away, our, the status which you had used to keep us in line. And we knew the WTO wasn't going to be able to penalize us. And the reason was because most of what China does is not written down uh, on paper. It's not hasn't gone through an Administrative Procedures Act that you can judicially go against in the in the WTO. That's one of the big limitations of the WTO. Second big limitation is the WTO is a political body, just like the WHO is a political body. As Mark Wu has written at Harvard, 
uh, law school, though a lot of those decisions are political decisions, well, we've got to give China a few, a few wins here and there. That's not how that process should work. So WTO has not been able to stop China or even slow them down significantly in, in terms of their unfair power tactics. So just want to do another Hirschman quote. Between those who ignore the danger of external economic relations becoming an instrument of national power aims and those who see the danger but try to remedy it by the defensive and offensive weapons of economic nationalism, a policy should be left to those who, faced with danger, refuse to allow the policy of either the ostrich or of the griboulet, someone who naively sees the adversary as innocent. If you look at the U.S. approach, that's what we've done. Uh, you know, a lot of the Obama trade officials were in the latter category. Oh, it's, China's not a problem or China's going to become like us or who cares whether we lose furniture. They just, you know, they just wanted to wish it away and not see it as a problem. And then you had Trump, which, you know, at the end of the day, wasted four years, really, when it comes to China. We didn't get anything for it. I mean, the only thing Trump did, which I give him credit for, is he, he certainly raised the issue. Uh, he, he made it much clearer what the threat was, but in terms of his taking any meaningful steps to do anything about it, he probably set us back because uh, he alienated our allies. So, yeah, look, the answer is we've got to do, as Hirschman said, you got you got to focus on what you can do domestically and then strategically focus with allies and other parties and with the WTO where you can limit uh, China uh, internationally. DATO, Democratically Aligned Trade Organization. A few, a few episodes ago, I did NATO for trade, but I like that this idea has now evolved to the point that it has its own acronym. So Rob, what's the idea behind this? And what can the US realistically expect um, like-minded countries to go along with to take the sort of action that, that Hirschman is pointing us towards? Yeah, so the WTO is not really designed for power trade because you, 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 you exert some sort of an attack, an economic attack on the foreign industry. By the time you get to the WTO, uh, the corpse would come to the hearing and go, I'm dead, thank you. In other words, you can't wait that for many of these things because it takes so long. And by then, the U.S. industry is dead. We saw that, for example, in, in, in solar panels. By the time this whole process finally worked out, it was, it was, it was too late. So the idea is what China's doing is using power to influence, uh, to, to imp impose harm. Well, that's kind of like a NATO issue. The NATO issue is, hey, the, the, German, the Russians attack us. We, we can't spend a year figuring out what we're going to do or we can't go to the U.N. We've got to respond immediately. And that's the idea of a NATO, a NATO for trade, as you, as you put it. And the idea would be, if you look at Chinese wolf warrior diplomacy and the like, I mean, look at what they're doing to Australia right now. I mean, they are... They don't like what Australia has said. They're, they're going to punish them for what Australia said, not what Australia did. You know, Australia said, hey, maybe China isn't responsible for the coronavirus. Like, yeah, no kidding. Or they don't like what China's doing and around human rights. And so they're going to punish them. And they've done it through trade policy. Australia is standing alone. I mean, it's ridiculous. We're just letting Australia stand alone and take that punishment. We need some kind of alliance that says, if you punish one of us, you're going to punish all of us, and we're all going to react at once. And that would slow the Chinese significantly down. They can't go around and pick off individual countries, threaten them, bully them, put a gun to their head to get what they want, because they know that all of our allies would come together and say, no, you can't do that. And we don't have that right now. 
So the the key swing player um, again, I think, comes down to the EU, and the, uh, the 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 question that sort of arises in in your writing is like, to what extent should the U.S. be willing to compromise? on some of these EU policies, which would likely lead to less dynamism domestically, but then would allow the the US and EU and, you know, sure, tack on Australia, South Korea, Vietnam, whatever, um, to be able to have this stronger response uh, in the face of these sort of aggressive power trade type activities. Yeah, I mean, I think I put the EU as as very important to that, just because they're they're so big uh, and and they're a market based democracy. I, I, increasingly, almost as every week goes by, I'm more and more skeptical. I think the the, the fact that the EU signed that investment deal um, with with China was, you know, to me a slap in the face to the U.S. Well, I mean, what are you what are you doing? Are you kidding? First of all, they're going to get screwed by that. I have no question that that's a bad deal for them. Because uh, the Chinese investment will be subject, uh, uh, you know, they're not. China won't have to live up to there, and an EU will live up to there. And so I don't know whether Europe. And and by the way, when we talk about Europe, we're really talking about Germany. So that's the linchpin. The Germans seem to be a, wanting to be a giant Switzerland, um, not take their global responsibility seriously, other than making as much money as possible in the short run. So I don't know whether we could get Europe to be in, to, to step up to their responsibilities. But if we can, that would be great. If we do it, I don't want to give up much either. I mean, the Europeans, they have this whole, you know, we, we have to have their privacy policy in the U.S. Well, that would be a disaster. Uh, we shouldn't have that. It would lead to less innovation. You have to pay for websites and all that. So we have to be careful. I think what I would say is, is we certainly should do, I, I think, along the lines of what, what Prime Minister Johnson did, uh, Boris Johnson proposed, a, a D10 uh you know, the, the, the Commonwealth countries, uh, India, maybe uh, Japan. Let's start with the countries that are have some uh, fortitude, if you will, and are willing to stand up and say something. And then if Europe wants to come along, we'll help them. Uh, we'll be part of it. But anyway, I'm increasingly skeptical that Europe is going to be able to do it. But I hope they will. And I hope the Biden administration tries. Sure. So before we move on, Rob, let's tell the kids out there why they should read Hurstman. You want to do a four sentence teaser on his biography and why you think his sort of aside from this, um, you know, this early book we talked about, why you think his, uh, you know, his work is still relevant today? Yeah, well, I mean, so Hirschman was had this long, long career and, and wrote many, many books and, and on a variety of different topics. I mean, he wrote a book later called The Strategy of Economic Development about how developing countries should grow their economies. And what I find so valuable about Hirschman was Hirschman was one. There's a, there's a joke about it. You know, the two economists walking down the street and they one of them sees a twenty dollar bill and walks right by it. And the other guy says, why didn't you pick that up? And the economist says, well, if it was really there, somebody would have already picked it up. In other words, they live in they live in a in a in almost a magical theoretical world. Hirschman started his all of his work from what was actually going on on the ground, what was happening, and most importantly for Hirschman, institutions were the key to his insights and analysis. Economists don't understand or don't think about institutions. Economists really are, at the end of the day, glorified analysts of markets that have some prices to them. But that's just a small component of what an economy is. Economies are much more about institutions, and uh, so. You know, Hirschman was really the guy who thought about institutions so much better than anybody, any other economist or many other economists, I should say. There are a few others like 
uh, Douglas North and some others. But that, that's why I like Hirschman so much. Yeah, I mean, he, he also has this crazy biography. He's born born in 1915 in a Jewish family in Berlin. He's one of those folks who decides to fight um, uh, on behalf of the Spanish Republic in the Civil War. Goes to uh, flees to the U.S. ends up translating for the Nuremberg trial. Um, you know, lives in Latin America for I think over a decade. Uh, and the other thing, which I think is 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 sort of good in our era, is that he does not waste words. Um, a lot of his books are you know 150, 200 pages, and they're the sort of thing where every paragraph will teach you something. And it's not like you don't want to skim it because you're worried you're going to like miss a little gem that he that he will stick in there. And there are just, you know, there's like a sense of humor also that you get in some of his um, in, in a fair amount of his work, which is very hard to find when you're talking about someone who's also doing a really good job of analyzing the way institutions function. So, yeah, I mean, um, the, the quotes you made, the quotes you, you mentioned from Hirschman from the article I wrote. I mean, you look at those quotes. I mean, they're they're beautiful quotes. They're just beautiful. Right? Just, yeah just gets it nails it and, and you're right it, that's not i didn't just pick some really good ones i mean they're they're riddled throughout his books yeah and english is like his fourth language or it's just it's not fair those people so it has recently come to my attention that not all trying to talk podcast listeners know that i have a newsletter I write it weekly. It covers U.S.-China relations and focuses a lot on bringing Chinese-language sources to the fore. Recent editions have touched on how China saw the capital mob, Chinese chip prospects, what Biden will need to do to lead Congress on Xinjiang and Hong Kong, and how the CCP does job promotions. If those things sound interesting to you, then sign up to my newsletter for free at chinatalk.substack.com. Um... All right. So 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 let's turn back to what national industrial policy should look like. Um, what's this distinction between supporting factor conditions and key industries and technologies? And where do you sort of strike the balance um, between investing in the two? So the, the, the big limitation of neoclassical economists or conventional economists is they really they, they're they're indifferent to what's called sectoral mix. You know, as Michael Boskin famously supposedly said, potato chips, computer chips, what's the difference? So the very first and most important principle for an industrial strategy is you have to be focused on and care about the sectoral composition of your economy. In other words, would we care if the U.S. economy ended up just simply selling waste paper and, and plastic and tourism to China and, and we import uh, robots and, and 5G equipment and, and semiconductors? Yeah, damn right we would care or we should care. Now, the problem is a lot of economists don't they don't care. I mean, a colleague of mine once said he was talking to the head of a big think tank in Washington and he asked him, how much manufacturing could the U.S. lose and still be OK? And the guy said, all of it doesn't make any difference. You can't have that attitude. So the idea of, okay, well, we that's the first thing. We need to focus on sectors. Then the question is, what are the factors that each sector are important for them in, in terms of competing? You're writing something on semiconductors. We need to understand the semiconductor industry better. What are the key things that will make us competitive? In some industries, it might be better skills and more early stage R&D and a better tax credit. In other industries, it might be better effective trade policy, or it might be maybe we need a public-private partnership like Semitech was. or So it really, at the end of the day, it's boiling this all down to look at sectors, and then in particular, how technology policy can affect their viability in the U.S. 
So one of the surprising things I've learned in my research over the past six months on this is like the dearth of knowledge within the U.S. government that doesn't come filtered through lobbyists. Why is this the case that um, there really is a, 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 a shocking paucity of expertise on these particular, uh, you know, key strategic industries? Well, you're not overstating it. Uh, you really aren't. It's, it's, it's almost mind boggling how little expertise there is. Now, I think there's a several reasons for that. One reason is, where would you learn that? So you get all these these young folks that come into the Biden administration or whatever administration, and you know they've gone to Harvard or Princeton or Yale or all these nice places. They don't teach this there. You can't learn that there. It doesn't get taught. You're in a public policy program, an economics program, a foreign affairs program, international relations. You don't learn this. So that's number one. It just isn't even on their radar screen. Secondly, Hardly any think tanks in Washington write about this stuff. Now, increasingly, they are because it's kind of becoming cool, but they don't. And then third reason is, you know, I, I've been I've been lecturing at the National Defense University for over a decade, and that's the one place in the government that takes this kind of thing seriously. And actually there, these are mid-level officers, sort of captains, lieutenants, colonels, uh, even generals. And they're now making a big effort to have them learn about industrial policy and how you would do it. But we don't do that in the federal government. We don't train folks. Look at CBO, for example, Congressional Budget Officer, the GAO. Zero I shouldn't say zero, almost no expertise in industrial strategy. So the, the advisory bodies to Congress, they don't even know about this. So it was funny because back, you mentioned the, you mentioned the 80s, Jordan. Back then, actually, there were a lot of congressional staffers. Uh, these folks really, really knew industrial policy, but they've all left. And the people that have replaced them have not developed that level of depth. And, and you know, you see the sort of seeds of interest in this stuff with uh, you know, the likes of Marco Rubio putting out a big bill and, you know, the CHIPS Act and whatnot. And the, the, the fact that there isn't some, you know, there aren't like 15, 20 year griddle, you know, grizzled civil service veterans who can advise on this stuff, but that, um, you know, the U.S. is still reliant a lot on kind of corporations and, and outside expertise when the whole idea of this industrial policy is not necessarily to support the incumbents, but to kind of create better paradigms for domestic growth is uh, unfortunate. And I think something that, um, you know, maybe not necessarily before the U.S. starts spending hundreds of billions of dollars on this sort of thing, but at least in tandem, there needs to be an effort to better understand these questions. Yeah, very much so. And I'm more optimistic than I was five or 10 years ago. There, there, you mentioned uh, Senator Rubio, but there's multiple folks in the House and the Senate now. Uh, the House uh, China Caucus had a really, you know, really excellent report on uh, and it talked about industrial policy or industrial strategy. Uh, Senator Todd Young from Indiana, a Republican, he, he, he co-sponsored a bill with Senator Schumer, obviously the new Democratic leader in the Senate on um, uh, what's called the Endless Frontier Act, $100 billion to core technologies like quantum and AI and, and others. So some of that's happening. Um, and, and they're talking to folks who know about industrial policy. So, uh, you know, we're moving in the right direction, I guess, would be the way to, would be the way to frame it. How much the Biden administration will really focus on this, uh, you know, and, and put it close to the top of their list? Uh, it's not clear yet uh, whether that will uh, uh, will exceed some of their other priorities, which are more social policy related. 
Sure. So let, let's talk about that for a little bit. You, you you have some riffs on how you're worried that sort of the left wing of the Democratic Party is going to sort of hijack and and hijack this 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 um uh, this momentum and 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 put it towards uses which won't end up you know making America sort of like a internationally competitive industrial machine. So what are the you know traps that more left wing Democrats may fall into when trying to roll out this sort of work? So there's really four traps. One is um, a lot of the, the progressive wing of the Democratic Party is really enamored with mom and pop small businesses. Uh, they, 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 they don't even think big companies are, are all that important. Um, and yet, as Mike Lind and I wrote in a book uh, a couple of years ago called Big is Beautiful, debunking the myth of small business, that's just simply wrong. Big companies pay higher wages. They're more unionized. They, they do all the things. They spend more money on environmental protection. But the progressive left is increasingly demonizing large companies. You cannot be internationally competitive unless you have large companies and small and medium. The second is uh, they really want to import kind of a Euro style regulation uh, system. And, and that, sure, there's, we, we've long supported a national privacy bill, for example. We're not libertarians, we're not anti-regulation, but you gotta do it the right way. They don't wanna do it the right way. Um, third, they uh, increasingly want to have everything seen through the label of race or racial justice. Um, and again, not to say that there aren't issues there, but when you spend all of your time there and then, you know, increasingly, uh, you know, big technology companies are going to be even more attacked for not employing enough uh, racial minorities, um, even though there frankly are very, very few in the pipeline. That's, you know, if you want to deal with that issue, which we should, it's a pipeline issue, not, not that. Um, so those, those are, I think, some of some of the big issues. And the, the fourth is really around that the left, progressive left, wants to have an industrial strategy. It's just that for a lot of them, it would be only focused on green, on climate. Um, that's a mistake. We have a clean energy innovation program. We believe in it deeply, but you can't build a globally competitive international economy only around clean technology. You have to have aerospace, robots, all semiconductors, the whole nine yards. So I worry that the whole thing is going to be sort of hijacked. Uh, everything is going to be have to be related to clean tech or clean energy in some way. Does the U.S. need a National Technology Council sort of on the level of uh, an NSC or a DPC? And, you know, why does the why does the current state of OSDP just sort of lead to it getting bullied around? Well, there's two things we need. One is we need an agency. Uh, so I'm, we've proposed, uh, you know, creating a national technology agency in various different names all over. But, you know, essentially we need that. We need that partly just, as you mentioned earlier, for the analytical heft. There's, there's no analytical capabilities in the government to figure this stuff out. You need an agency that has some of those capabilities as well as some funding capabilities and the like. But then within the White House, I mean, Biden has proposed or is proposing to uh, bump up uh, OSTP, I guess, to cabinet level status. Yeah, that'll help. But you really, at the end of the day, you know, what OSTP is, 90% of it is science, 10% of it is technology, 0% of it, 1% is innovation and competitiveness. It's a science-based entity. Nothing wrong with that, but it, there's, it's not really... Especially, especially after, not. You, after you appoint a geneticist in the role, yes. which is completely exactly. understandable. We're in a global pandemic, but at the same time, you know, his bailiwick is not industrial policy. Yeah, exactly. And so NS, NSC, maybe they could do that, but they're not really, it's not their thing. And NEC, yeah. 
So I think, yeah, a National Technology Competitiveness Council would be a very good entity to add to the mix within the White House because it would give it its standing when it's in all, all these meetings, that issue. Any last words, Rob? I think given that we're doing this interview the day after the not the uh, the uh, uh, the um, uh, President Biden's swearing in and uh, it was a really good day yesterday. Uh, I think the really critical question for the U.S. in the next four years is, you know, is the administration or people like Jake Sullivan and others, are they really going to take this seriously and do everything that needs to happen? I hope they do. I, I, my fingers are crossed, but I'm not 100 percent sure they will. And I think. Look, if we don't do what we need to do, the, the window is closing quite fast. Uh, we have 10 more years left, I believe, if we don't get it right. Uh, then we just should assume that we're going to be a second rate power technologically and, and eventually militarily. Uh, so it's, it, we've got a decade to get it right. And I hope I hope the Biden team really focuses on that and does everything they need. And Congress goes along and helps. Tarun, we're counting on you. Thanks, thanks a lot. <laughs> All right. Uh, Rob, thanks so much for being a part of Chinatown. Jordan, really my pleasure. Enjoyed it.
Oh, my in-laws just called to let us know they're on their way over and we're out of food. Great. Luckily, Instacart helps me get groceries delivered in as fast as an hour. Plenty of time to cook an in-law-worthy meal. Now, what to make? Chicken parm. Perfect. Download the Instacart app or visit instacart.com to get $10 off your first order using the code PREPARED10. Now the only thing to worry about is dinner conversation. Offer valid for a limited time. Minimum order $35. Delivery subject to availability. Additional terms apply.